at this point, you can no longer ignore what's happening on, from an innovation perspective, because it's not just that someone's going to kind of nip at your heels and take away some of your business, but you have the potential to be massively disrupted in a very short period of time if you're ignoring what's happening in the technology landscape. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined by my good friend and long-suffering Cleveland sports fan, Joe Medved. Joe joins us as a venture partner from Lear Hippo, and today we're going to talk about his career as a VC, how he predicts the turn, and what he sees in the changing landscape of digital media and innovations. Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, Joe and I go way back to uh, the world of venture capital and some deals we've looked together and as a long mentor for the brandery and looking forward to the conversation today. What I'd love to start with is tell us a little bit about what led you to the world you are today, starting as an investment banker and ultimately ending up with Lear Hippo. Yeah, so I started my career in investment banking at J.P. Morgan for five very long, painful years. And I focused mostly on telecom media and tech companies. And I just found over time that I really enjoyed working a lot more with smaller companies than I did focusing on financial engineering, which is effectively what we did on the banking side. So we, I had worked with some companies in the cable network space, and I happened to come across a fund that had a partner who had operated a couple of cable networks and was looking for someone to assist with uh, looking at those new investments. It was called Constellation Ventures. It was part of Bear Stearns Asset Management when that still existed. So I was there for a couple years, and that partner ended up leaving. And at that point, I transitioned over to SoftBank Capital, where I worked for about a decade um, and focused on early stage investing in a lot of digital media companies, but ultimately kind of looked at consumer and enterprise broadly. And so I focused on everything from kind of C to Series B investing at SoftBank for about a decade. And then about three years ago, when SoftBank Corp shifted focus to much later stage investing, which started this $100 billion vision fund project, I transitioned over to Layer Hippo, where I now manage the legacy SoftBank capital assets uh, and assist with new investments at Layer Hippo. Awesome. So let's talk about that last decade of the focus SoftBank and you know, now at Lear Hippo with everything you're doing, a lot of that has been the world of digital media. Mm -hmm. And that's a space that's had one or two changes kind of over the last decade, say the least. But you've also been a front row of changes that have been in automotive with your mechanic, Mm -hmm. with food and snacking through NatureBox, and many, many others. What do you think is unique about this time that we're going through of all of these industries kind of being upended, changing, and what are you looking for in it? I think generally the pace of change has just accelerated so rapidly, right? Like what's happened in the last year is probably more than happened in the last few. What's happened in the last couples, last five, you know, versus, you know, even the last five versus the last 25. You just think of the advancements of, you know, smartphones and how rapidly that's changed the world that we live in. And so I think, I think what we've seen is that even, you know, no matter what industry you're operating in, it could be archaic industries like automotive, like uh, insurance even, right? Where you're in a position that you can no longer ignore technology because it's dramatically changing not only the way you operate, but the way your consumers are acquiring everything that they're purchasing, right? Whether it's a car, whether it's some kind of a service for their home or an insurance product, whatever it may be. And so as a result, we've just seen that every major industry has sort of been forced to focus on innovation. 
and I had a somewhat unique lens being at SoftBank, which was sort of at the time was sort of like a it was like a quasi corporate fund, right? We had all our money from SoftBank Corporation out of Japan, which is this sort of massive conglomerate of assets in the Japanese market, focused mostly sort of in the telco and broadband landscape and mobile. And so we were helping them identify emerging trends in the U.S. markets that they should be thinking about for Japan. And ultimately, over time, they decided to make investing sort of core to the focus of what the business had done. But you see a variety of corporations taking different approaches. But I just think at this point, you can no longer ignore what's happening on, from an innovation perspective, because it's not just that someone's going to kind of nip at your heels and take away some of your business, but you have the potential to be massively disrupted in a very short period of time if you're ignoring what's happening in the tech technology landscape. So that's a really key point that you mentioned of the competition has changed. Mm-hmm. It's not about market any market share necessarily, but it's yeah. about you might lose an entire market. Mm-hmm. When you look at an entrepreneur and somebody that's talking about changing, disrupting, pick whichever buzzword you want to use, yeah. how do you separate whether or not that's an outsider that doesn't understand the industry mm-hmm. or if mm-hmm. they have that potential be a disruptor? Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's people that have been successful with sort of all types of backgrounds, someone who's been in the industry for decades, someone who's never been there and has is is sort of naive enough to believe that they can do something wildly disruptive. And sometimes that's required. I think if, if there is any kind of common thread amongst a lot of the founders we've backed, often it is an individual who maybe they were a digital native or they were just generally... Um, you know, generally had a love for technology and they operated within a business that was fairly traditional and they just sort of raised their hand early to be the person, honestly, not unlike you with P&G, right? You kind of raised your hand to focus on some of this technology innovation before, you know, I think a lot of probably the high level executives were truly focused on it. And you, you know, it's people like yourselves who work within these corporations and experience the problems firsthand that they're trying to solve for. They have the pains and they're like, geez, I mean, I'm like, and especially you see, even on the enterprise side, like you see, you know, consumers that are using their phones to acquire everything that they want. And they're like, why can't I use this device to do certain things within the workforce as well? Right. So it's sort of a mix of backgrounds, but we love to find founders that have experienced that pain directly, but have kind of a technology bent and the ability to look at things through a different lens to try and disrupt traditional industries. So speaking of some of those traditional industries, Lear Hippo's been at the forefront of the the change in digitally native vertical brands, consumer mm-hmm. brands, yeah. folks like Allbirds and Casper and, mm-hmm. you know, too many to even count. Yeah. What do you think about what's led to this new opportunity of brand creation? Because it goes more than just the mobile phone or any of that. Yeah. yeah. It's physical products. Yes. Um, what's led to that? What's um, I think, you know, a key thing, obviously, is the way that consumers are acquiring these goods, right? So that's, that's it's changed dramatically. I mean, there's, and I mean, still the vast majority of things are bought in store, right? So even the brands we're working with are still, most of them as they're scaling are still going to look in store. But a lot of them are born online. And the ones that we've seen really succeed, they just, they have a founder who knows how to build an incredible, like incredibly authentic brand narrative around a high quality product, right? So if you look at Allbirds as an example, like one of the co-founders had been, it was a great background story. He'd been a, a soccer player in New Zealand and he discovered this amazing wool that created these incredibly comfortable shoes. And it was a great product that when people wore it, I mean, like nine times out of 10, they would all tell their friends, oh my God, this is the most comfortable shoe I've ever worn in my life. And as a result, 
the company had such a massive advantage from a unit economic perspective in terms of acquiring customers at an insanely low cost because there was just this great product with a background story that was compelling. And the company really shared that in a very authentic way through a variety of, you know, means around social media and Facebook. And, you know, you start seeing people use influencers. There's all kinds of stories like that. Or you have like uh, Dia & Co., which is a company we invested in, the founder, who's a plus-size woman herself, found that she basically could not find high-quality, stylish clothes in traditional retail environments. And she really established this incredibly unique brand voice and, and built a community around a consumer where she was delivering clothes that made women her, in her community really feel beautiful in a way that they that could never be delivered in traditional stores that were just not really catering to that audience, which is really substantial in the U.S. and was clearly being underserved. And that's an interesting one where she actually had a couple of competitors in the market that had preceded her, but she as an individual was able to build such a strong brand that she's really become the leader within that segment, right? So I think a key to it for us is identifying not only the market opportunity, but the individual who can really drive just an incredible brand story. Like we even had, um, we were having a partner discussion a couple of weeks ago and if we were looking at a new direct-to-consumer brand, and we were talking about the product and the unit economics and and our partner, Ben, who you know really well, who's who's really led most of our consumer investments, he said, wait, stop, we're having the wrong conversation. He said, every great bet that we've made in the direct-to-consumer space has been based on the quality of the founder, oftentimes in the first meeting when they gave that pitch. And it's someone that he really has this great ability to, it's almost like identifying an emerging artist. It's just someone who has the ability to develop that narrative around an incredibly unique product that you know is going to be amplified in today's landscape around things like social media with younger consumers that are looking to purchase these items more online. At least the influencers do. And then, like I said, as you scale, you go to traditional retail as well. Yeah. And when you guys look at these consumer brands, you know, a lot of them, they built businesses are 50 million, 100 million, you know, even 500 million. Mm -hmm. But most of them are in a single category. Mm-hmm. Yet you look who they're competing against. The establishment is the Procter and Gamble's, the Unilever's, the General Mills. Where do you see these categories going? Is it going to be some of these digitally native vertical brands evolve into digitally native vertical companies in multiple mm-hmm. categories? Mm-hmm. Or are they just going to get acquired by bigger guys like Bonobos did by Walmart and Dollar yeah. Shave by Unilever? Where do you see the landscape going? Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So I, I think it'll be a mix, right? If you look at some of the ones that we're in that have really scaled, like Casper, as an example, you know, which really started with just mattresses, has broadened their scope to you know sleep in general, right? So they are getting to the point where they've reached significant scale, where they can have kind of vertical products sort of alongside their core initial product. 
And, you know, they're starting to establish their own stores. They, they've partnered with retailers like Target. Like, there are companies like those that may, you know, kind of grow into massive independent brands sort of within their verticals. And then there's there are others that will just, you know, very rapidly sort of build out a high-quality product, maybe in a specific niche. And, you know, you might find founders and investors kind of willing to sell early. I mean, for us, it's really, we really kind of look to the founder. They will know when they've kind of, they, we feel like they've kind of maximized value. But I think you will see a mix of them. But we the ones that that scale, it's probably it probably is that like seventy-five to hundred million dollar mark where you're like, okay, we now have to go into physical retail, right? And and the, and we see this in particular. I mean, in our neighborhood, so our our office is in uh, the Soho neighborhood of New York, and I mean, you go up and down like a few blocks near us. Every single, I mean, every store, every other store, it feels like it's it's yeah. being. There's a pop up shop from some new brand that's emerging, sort of in a cool neighborhood. Like they're all testing out retail. Allbirds had done that initially and was wildly successful, and has now expanded and they're opening more locations. Right, Warby Parker had done them, you know, for for glasses. So I think we're going to see plenty of those companies really becoming the new leaders because so much of what's built around the brand the influencers is driven through online engagement, right? As opposed to offline. So I think you are going to see these people that that build a brand online that then become sort of winners in the traditional world. Yeah. Makes sense. Now, sticking with the world of online though, you know, one of the things you've talked about is that one of the biggest shifts you think we're seeing right now is the shift to voice. Hmm. And that's going to be both a creative force and a destructive force. So where how do, does a brand think about an emerging technology like that mm-hmm. and that shift to an operating system? What should they be doing about it? Yeah, I think, look, voice is a space. I'd say like 12 or 18 months ago, so many investors, including ourselves, were very excited about voice and the transition there. I mean, obviously, you're seeing just sort of massive adoption of Alexa products and now Google Home. And, and I'm as, as big a geek as they come with that stuff. I mean, we have multiple Alexas in the home. I just ordered some Google Home devices so I can compare the two. So I think the you know connection that an Amazon and a Google and and some other players are likely to have with the consumer in the home um, with that voice connection is incredible. But I think it's still going to be a few years before there's a lot of transactions driven there. Um, but I think a bridge to getting there, which is sort of you know, embracing conversational commerce is more likely to happen sort of in the messaging world first, yeah. right? So, I mean, obviously at some point when everyone got into Facebook, you had companies like Buddy Media, which we were investors in, which were helping bring a bunch of brands sort of into that world. You're seeing more companies now that are trying to help create, and some of it's through bots and some of it's through more kind of interactive conversations, but trying to help drive commerce through transactions that are happening in the messaging world. And particularly for younger consumers, I mean, you see with, I mean, I have an 11-year-old son. I mean, he's probably more likely to want to text his friends than he is obviously pick up the phone and call them. Unfortunately, that's where the world is headed. So, you know, I think brands have to recognize that and think about how they can converse with consumers in a very authentic way in that environment. And I think the same conversational constructs that are utilized in messaging are likely to transition well to voice when, you know, sort of discoverability is kind of solved in that environment. I mean, the, the problem, I mean, Alexa has so many different skills, but uh, and I use it every day, but I, I can't tell you what skills I even have on the platform, right? So I think it will change, and Amazon's obviously going to have a heck of a lot, a lot of control yeah. over that experience, right? And, and I don't know if there's a way that that could be avoided, but I would, I would definitely, as a brand, be thinking about how I can engage in conversational commerce. You know, thinking about the existing voice platforms, but definitely going there and messaging today, because I think you can, you can clearly drive transactions there, and that will eventually get sort of parlayed into traditional, you know, the more uh, audio-focused voice. Conversations, yeah. yeah. 
So on that, you know, one of the biggest things going on in the speed of change is not just the companies changing, but mm. us as business leaders, executives needing mm. to embrace that change in this kind of continuous beta that's going on. Yeah. You're on the leading edge of having to do that change because you're seeing new startups every single day. Mm-hmm. How are you thinking about keeping on top of things and being able to really evaluate these new entrepreneurs that are pitching you ideas in spaces mm-hmm. that you might not have never had experience in or yeah. done a deep dive as somebody pitches you a blockchain or yeah, e-commerce yeah, yeah. or voice or anything else? Yeah. I mean, for us, I mean, we, yeah, we look and just uh, as, you know, sort of setting the, the basis here, like we look across nearly every major industry, right? The only thing we're not really, we're not really doing biotech or deep in the stack infrastructure, but we'll look at most consumer and enterprise categories. And I think we, we, I mean, we're one of the most active seed investors in the country, so we have the benefit of seeing a lot of deal flow. So we tend to see sort of waves of innovation around mm-hmm. specific segments. Like one segment where we've been quite active, um, where a lot of investors aren't playing, is actually the cannabis sector, yeah. right? And we've now made a handful of investments in that space. And yeah, it's not an area where we had great expertise previously. I mean, what we tend to try to do is just mine our networks as much as we can to find experts that we can reach out to, you know, to provide some guidance to us. But even in some sectors, like blockchain is an example which could impact so many different industries. Like the way we've thought about that segment is we want to make a handful of bets in people who we just deem to be, who we think are just great founders, like very smart. Maybe they're people that we invested in in other segments in the past, but they're potentially they're great technologists. Uh, they have developed great products. They're just very smart people that are diving into these industries and people who we think are eventually going to be nodes in these networks. And honestly, from our perspective, like their first or second ideas might not really work, um, but we just want to back the smartest people in those segments. Um, and that will help strengthen our network and our expertise within those businesses. Now, the other thing you can do as well, it, I mean, Twitter is just the greatest tool, I think, for people in our industry today. Um, you know, I, I use it regularly just to track sort of emerging ideas across all the leaders in our ecosystem. But if you are, you know, sort of specifically interested in a new segment, you can fairly easily go go in and figure out who the influencers are in that space, in part based on kind of follower count, but just also tracking sort of who is generating the most social media engagement around content that's created in that space. It can be podcasts, it can be medium posts, uh, it's newsletters, it's a variety of those things. But I mean, I find Twitter just to be a, a wildly valuable tool in that regard. It's even honestly a great networking tool. I yeah. mean, connecting with people on Twitter, starting a conversation with them there can very easily lead to offline conversations as well. So you hit on a really interesting part there as being an early stage investor, you have to pay attention to waves of innovation that are coming, mm-hmm. but you also have to separate that from a fad. Mm-hmm. But you're making bets pretty early before necessarily you know if that is becoming a wave or if it's just going to peter out and die. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you assess that? And how do you make almost a willingness to take those early bets and see some of them die out before the wave starts? Yeah, I think, I mean, you just have to be willing to take risk, right? I mean, I think generally with... with you know, early stage investing, generally, the, the thesis always is like, you're going to make 10 investments, three or four are going to fail, you're going to get nothing back, three or four will get you your money back, and one or two will drive the vast majority of the returns, right? And I think whether you're an investor or you're someone sort of working with, within a corporation and trying to drive change, you have to have that same mentality and be willing to fail. Um, and, you know, for us, it's really just, it doesn't, we, I mean, we look at thousands of companies, we make two to three investments a month, which is still a, a very active pace. But, you know, even, you know, we may have a fund, our latest funds are around $120 million. We'll make 40 to 50 investments. Only a couple of the companies within that portfolio will drive the vast majority of the value. But we just want to continue to back a 
back a lot of smart people who have a variety of interesting ideas. It's more challenging, I know, within a corporation often to have that mentality, but you have to give people the autonomy and ability to fail. Otherwise, they're just less likely to, to really create something fresh and new that can disrupt the industry. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. So you've been kind of uniquely positioned in your engagement with corporations because of Constellation, mm-hmm. then SoftBank. Yeah. But you were coming in Cincinnati to meet with P&G back in 2000, 2008, 2009, sure. well before most VCs were thinking about engaging with corporations. Yeah. What kind of led you to that view of corporations being a good thing for an early stage com- company mm-hmm. versus maybe a, a harmful thing like <laughs> some of your peers? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's funny that there's, there has historically been a lot of arrogance sort of on all sides, right? From the founders, from the investors, and from the corporations themselves, right? And I think I think what I saw early on is that the, you know, look, to disrupt a lot of these massive industries, one, you want to be close to a lot of the people that are sort of within those large corporations that are thinking about innovation, in part because those are a lot of the people that are going to likely to leave and start the new companies, like I mentioned, right? And they really are going to have sort of expertise and, and networks within those segments. But part of it is I do think corporations can be very helpful. And look, and we, we, we played that card at SoftBank, I think, in a good way where we said, look, we, and we were... We were uniquely structured, um, at least for the time, I think, in that we were really structured like a traditional fund. Yep. So, you know, the partners who were involved were all putting their personal capital into these businesses. And effectively, when we made money, uh, or sorry, when the founders made money, we made money. So if we were going to drive a partnership uh, with someone like SoftBank, we were going to make sure that it was a fair deal because it would economically impact us. Now, we also obviously had to balance that our money was coming from SoftBank, right? Yep. So we have to do things that are favorable to them as well. But I think it set up a, a good relationship where as quasi-corporate investors, we could really operate like a traditional supportive institutional VC. And I think you've just seen corporations shift more and more to that type of format because if you don't like if you and look, there's there's a sort of massive wave of new corporate dollars in the venture world today, yeah. and sometimes you know out of the gates the the thinking is like I'm the 800 pound gorilla in the room. I'm going to set up like I want to write a first refusal to purchase your company or I want a percentage of your revenue. When you take that strategy, which I think had been done a lot historically, you're going to fail. Like it's just yeah. it's it's adverse selection because even even where we sit, we're one of the most active investors in the country, and and I can't take credit for this, but I think the Lara Hippo team has just built an incredible brand. And even so, for a lot of the best, you know, the best deals, like we are fighting to get in those deals, right? I mean, we we work very hard to develop a platform with great resources so that entrepreneurs speak well of us as very supportive investors. So we need to bring that with us to get into a lot of the best deals. So if you're known in the startup world as being just, you know, some kind of corporate investor or partner that's going to take advantage of founders, that news is going to travel so rapidly within the industry and you will fail. So I, but I think, I think we've seen a lot of that activity kind of flushed out of the market because people have realized it doesn't work. And so, I mean, there's still people that can operate kind of in, in the wrong way in that regard. But I think generally we're seeing more more great corporate investors coming in and, and acting more like traditional VCs. So as you see this rise of corporate investors, you historically have the, the corporate VCs involved, but then you have the marketers and the business leaders that mm-hmm. are also involved. Yeah. What are you seeing work and not work in terms of those two groups, not often reporting up to the same person, sure. so yeah. representing the company the same way, not tripping over each other? Yeah. Any lessons that you've seen from being on both the SoftBank side and now yeah. Lear Hippo? 
Yeah, I think I think so. I think the best strategies are typically when the unit that's focused on innovation has some like a relative degree of autonomy yeah. from the mothership, right? Um, because if it's the job of that team or those individuals to help drive innovation and disruption of the industry, if they need to get approval from the business unit head, like it's just like you're dead on arrival. Like that that strategy does not work because that person is not going to want to risk their PL or they're just going to look at the world very differently than some kind of new founder may. Um, so I, I think you need to be willing to have, you know, somewhat of an arm's length relationship there, right, right where you can allow people to have some autonomy. And because if it's their job to sort of get ahead of the market, you have to let them invest ahead of where you're willing to go. So I think you know, when you have teams that are very independent, particularly if you want them to really lead investments, you almost need to have that structure. If if you're part of a, an organization that's not quite willing to get there yet, I think another good strategy is to have a team that that might focus more on kind of following on with other traditional VCs, right? Where you're not necessarily going to come in and lead the rounds. You're not going to come in and ask for any onerous terms, but you're going to be a great partner to someone that wants to come in and lead the round. And you can establish relationships with really high quality firms that want to find strategic partners who can help with, you know, maybe it's distribution of product or helping raise brand awareness or other, some kind of other partnership piece. Or maybe they want to use you for diligence. Like, I mean, you know, as we look in the new sectors, we like to find strategic investors that, you know, can help us assess the value of potential business. So I think if you can be kind of the best friend of the, VC, of the you know, kind of uh, traditional VCs, I think that's another good strategy. Love it. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. So, you know, final question. I mentioned the beginning, yeah. you're a Cleveland fan yes. through and through. Yeah. Now, I want to make the parallel that you've had to have patience as a Cleveland fan. That's so, sure. yes. what's that taught you about the patience of uh, venture capital? Well, I did. Patience is key. So, so I, I've been a Cleveland sports fan uh, since I was born, and I've seen one championship in my lifetime, which is wildly painful. But um, I do think, you know, to be a startup investor or to be a founder, you have to be wildly patient. And kind of like being a Cleveland sports fan, you have to be a little crazy too, because you have to believe that the unbelievable can happen. And you know, ultimately, ultimately, all of us like if if you're founding a company, like you're nuts to do it because like the odds that you're going to succeed are so low, right? But that's why when they do succeed, you have uh, just you know, an incredible outcome, and it's so well deserved, right? And investors, <clears throat> investors obviously were were kind of spreading our risk across a number of baskets, so we're not going to make the same return. We certainly don't deserve the same return as the founder, but we're also a little nuts to invest in the space because most investments fail. So I think like being a Cleveland sports fan, you just have to you have to be willing to gut it out for many years. And the other key thing is you just have to try to find a great leader. You got to find a LeBron James or God willing, uh, a Baker Mayfield um, as, as the next great leader in Cleveland. You know, you need to find someone to kind of lead people, you know, up a mountain when, when like death is nearly certain, like you, like someone who can really convince people to work hard and take massive risks, you know, to actually drive home a, a win. I love it. Yeah. And yeah. then you unlock the beer fridge when you get yes, the win. There finally. you go. So, there you go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Joe, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, we're here for uh, the Centri Centrifuge annual meeting. So we're going to head off and I appreciate you taking time to sit down. All right. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.